Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. And once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who gruffles in a punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge guest for me, I say it to him on the podcast, one of the greatest songwriters of all time, in my opinion, Robin Hitchcock is on the show. More on that in one second, but first... If you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address turned at a punk podcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Left for Damien. Uh, and uh, there's a YouTube page. I do a YouTube page for this podcast. I'm, I got to post some stuff on it. I also have a TikTok page. <laughs> Uh, there's a, and, uh, in addition on my Instagram and Twitter thing, I post these, uh, short turn it a punk highlight documentary things that I've been making, uh, taking stories from old episodes. And so if you've checked out one of those and are here because of that, thank you for, uh, c- coming and checking out the podcast. And if you have not checked out those things and you listen to this podcast, they're way shorter. You get through those way quicker and, uh, you don't have to put up with this part of the podcast anyway. Uh, I play in a band. We are called Fucked Up, and we are going on tour to England right now. Like right now, I'm 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 probably while you're listening to this, I'm in the UK. You can find out our tour dates over there at fuckedup.cc. It's in celebration of our new record, One Day, which is out now on Merge. You can find that anywhere you listen to your music at. And I'm very excited to play. We're going to be on tour with Big Cheese, one of the great UK punk bands going on right now. Um, very excited to see them. Very excited for this tour. And um, yeah, so hopefully I will see you out there. And if I do, bring some of that UK cheese for me, if you if you don't mind. And I don't mean uh, I don't mean uh, the dairy kind because I'm vegan. And I don't mean the vegan kind either, though. You know what I'm saying? Someone, someone. All right. On to today's show. Today on the show, Robin Hitchcock is here. Robin Hitchcock is, of course, the uh, legendary um, songwriter. I, I tell him to his face, he's one of the great songwriters to me uh, ever. I love his the stuff he's written all the way back to the Soft Boys, which I describe as a punk band. Robin tends to disagree with me a little bit on this, as you'll hear. But all, to today, the stuff he's doing, he's got a, a great new record called Shuffle Mania, out now on his own label. You can find out more information about that over at robinhitchcock.com. And there's also tour dates over there because Robin is coming to America and playing, I'm not going to say all over, but playing a lot of, a, a lot of America. I, I guess it's a, it's a big country playing, playing a lot of America. I'm not gonna say most of America, playing a lot of America. You can find out all these tour dates over there at robinhitchcock.com uh, as of March 17th. Check your local listings now for uh, for that, or or check the the website. Um, but yeah, Robin is someone that I became first aware with. I, I talk about all this in the episode. I don't know. <laughs> I won't have to repeat it for you now. You're gonna hear about it in two seconds. I heard about him, uh, but I've been a fan ever since, and you should be a fan if you're not already. And if you are, I'm sure you're excited to hear this and don't want to hear me yammering on anymore. But before I let you run off and listen to this episode, I got to tell you, um, I got to, well, I got to thank, first of all, Cream Magazine for being our sponsor for this month. Very much appreciated. Cream Magazine is back. I'm a huge fan of this magazine from its original incarnation. I'm, I'm a huge fan of this magazine in its current incarnation. 
too. So the fact that they believe in this podcast is pretty awesome. Uh, there's actually a family connection with Cream too, because Lauren, my long-suffering wife, her uncle Andrew was a former editor of the magazine. Uh, rest in peace, Andrew, and wrote an incredible, incredible piece. I think it was in published in both the UK and the American edition. I got to check the archive because with this Cream revival, they've digitized every issue of Cream magazine. So I got to make sure they have the this article in there because I think it was like the first public diss of the Grateful Dead in a music magazine. And he got, got a lot of hate from deadheads, <laughs> like really early on. So it's a, it's a great article. So dig in the archive because you can go over to right now to cream and that's cream with two E's if you don't know, uh, com and search, uh, this archive that they have there because they are offering you as a fan of turned out a punk, a 15% off discount in a subscription to the magazine or uh, a fan club, which gives you digital access to the magazine because this thing's not just back in, you know, digital form. This thing's back in physical form. This is something you want to hold on to this magazine. It's like, I hold on to all this stuff. I'm going to have these, these things for years. This will one day be a huge burden on my kids when they have to find out what to do with all my shit. Um, but this is something you want to hold on to, you know, flip through these magazines. There's beautiful photographs and articles by, you know, real, really passionate music writers. That was the one thing about Cream in its first incarnation, and that remains true to this day. It has always been done by very passionate people when it comes to music. And that's illustrated by the fact they've got Martine from Crudos and Limpress contributing, and they have uh, Raymond Pettibon, and, and they've got... You know, also at the same time, they've got this, you know, incredible crop of young music writers too. It's not just old people. As I'm running through these names, I'm like, oh, these are very old people. They've got young writers that are writing about music from a passionate place too. Anyway, you got to see this thing. It is fantastic. I'm a huge fan of magazines. I love these things. So, uh, so once again, Cream Magazine is offering you, as a fan of Turn Out a Punk, 15% off uh, access to the fan club, which is sort of the digital access to the magazine and the archive, the incredible archive with everything in it. Or you can get the physical magazine, a subscription to that. It's going to come out quarterly. They've got a brand new issue that, as I said, just dropped. And uh, yeah, thanks, Cream. And welcome back, Cream. All right. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Robin Hitchcock on Turned Out a Punk. Robin, thank you again for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Damien. Well, as I said before, I, I, well, I didn't say this before because I didn't want to have to embarrass you twice, but I think you're one of the greatest songwriters ever. And uh, your music has impacted me immensely, you know, both in the soft voice, solo, everything you do. And uh, yeah, it's, I think your voice is very important to have on this show. So I can't wait to get to do this with you. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, I got to start them off the way they all start off, which is, Robin, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across it? I came across punk rock. Or heard the term even. Like, when, when did you first? Oh, well, that's an interesting one. Um, I would say it would have been August or September 1976 um, when the first damned single came out they'd been i lived not far from london i was i was in cambridge 
Um, and London was the place to go. And that was the place to get gigs if you could get gigs. And I didn't really have a band, but I was trying people out all the time and I was working on it. And I was just getting to know some of the people that then became the soft boys. And I was making inquiries about um, how you played on the London pub rock circuit, because it was very much a kind of cabal. You seem to be either in or out. And from where we were in Cambridge, we were out. You know, there was no quick way to play the Nashville Rooms or the Red Cow or the Hope and Anchor or Dingwalls or, you know, very, all, most of those places are, are long gone. Um, but I remember ringing up somebody from the Albion Agency who booked three of those places and he said, well, the thing is, he said, you don't have to be any good. You just have to attract a bit of press, you know, like this new band, the Sex Pistols, you know. I mean, they're getting a lot of press. And I said, oh, oh, really? All oh, right, okay. Obviously, but, you know, this was something I was very unlikely to do, especially from being up in Cambridge. Um, and, but that summer and early autumn, three or four British punk bands put, records out and the one i actually noticed was the damned maybe because stiff took full page adverts in sounds or something like that you know they were really they had a lot of chutzpah they kind of had very much money but they really made a splash with what they had and uh, so i remember you know even up in cambridge people were buying that first damned single I, I can't remember if it was neat 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 or new rose but it was that you know and then there was uh, sex pistols who attracted a lot of publicity on a bigger level because they signed to emi and then got sacked and then signed to AM and got dropped and you know the massive publicity for all that so there were very few records but but by the end of yeah autumn 76 it was it was clear that this was the new thing that was happening but the music press which is really what we relied on you know they were they were our antennae london was only 60 miles away but the way to find out what was happening was actually to read sounds or nme um or to go down there if you could it wasn't very far but um, you know, the press didn't take them very seriously to begin with. They were seen as a bit of a joke. And all that changed in 77. Well, that's, and that, I'm fascinated by that. That kind of period, like you're talking about, from 76 to 77, in, in London specifically, but I guess all the UK by that point, it's like a music revolution happens, like a floodgate opens. And, you know, from a, a little dribble of bands in the beginning to... You know, by 78, 79, there's just a, a plethora of these DIY bands, fuck off records, desperate bicycles, raw records. Uh, there's just like a, it felt like there was a, a groundswell of, of sort of like youth culture exploding. At yeah, least there was. From historical distance <laughs> and geographical. No, no, there, no, it was, I mean, it was actually, it was happening at the time. And, you know, there were good things about it and there were, for us, negative things about it. Um, I think at the very beginning, nobody necessarily knew what it was going to be. There wasn't even a uniform. There were, there were maybe 
15 punks, and seven of them were based in Croydon. Um, I, I became friendly with Captain Sensible a few years later, and he said, well, punk, he said it was, in the beginning, it was just going to be, you know, make it whatever you wanted, but it became a uniform, you know, and he said how he wore a dog collar, and then suddenly there were hundreds of other kids wearing dog collars, and, you know, it, it became... Um, no pun intended, there was a dogma laid down about the whole thing. And within a couple of, you know, by uh, watching the music press was the most fascinating thing because Christmas 76, you know, it was still a joke. Um, but by the middle of 1977, everyone had got rid of their flared trousers, all the moustaches and the beards were going, uh, unless you were Lemmy. You know, um, it, it was a, the whole thing was the hair, hair went right the way back off the collar. Um, you know, it was, it just, and, and, and the flares, you know, you see these pictures of like early pictures of Elvis Costello and the attractions, and they've all got these whacking great flares. On Christmas, they're all gone. <laughs> Even the soft boys. Um, you know, I noticed, you know, we've had them, I had a beard at the beginning of 1977, but by, by the end of 77, when we, we, fact, we opened for Elvis and the Attractions um, at, at a gig in London, um, you know, there was, not, there was not a flare to be seen in the house. <laughs> Flares were last seen in, Lincoln, in Lincolnshire, you know. What you were saying, I think, is, is incredibly interesting because it is, you know, eventually it does get codified, and by the time... I guess it happens in, in England way sooner, but I think by the time like the early 80s are around, punk is this very sort of capital P a defined aesthetic, but that first wave is so cool where people are still trying to figure it out and all sorts of music is falling under the umbrella. Like, it's just, it feels like it was, like you're saying, like no one knew what it was going to be, so it could have been anything. Yes, and it could it could have been anything. And there was a lovely sort of experimental phase. You know, different people and different rock writers who I really think had an enormous influence on this thing, because I think this was one of the first things that, one of the first movements that came up when the rock press was really well established. They had a lot of good writers, smart writers, aggressive writers, the, it, it, there was nothing much sleepy left in British rock journalism at that point. I think it's the first time the rock writers really had a big influence on how things went. You know, you'd get mm -hmm. um, just different people who encouraged, like someone like John Savage, who was writing for Sounds at that point, actually was very keen on what would now be called the art rock end of it. Um and uh, you know any one of them might review Tom Petty or something, but generally they had they had their own niches that they were doing. Um, and then a sort of rather a guy who turned out to be a bit of a sort of right wing meathead, Gary Bushell, was writing for Sounds, and he was very big on the Skinhead bands that came up a few years later. Um, and uh, you got you got some people who were pretty you know people who went for the kind of pretentious end of it if you like and others who went for the um 
you know, I like music that the music that's descended from Lou Reed or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the thing that you were not supposed to be descended, the thing that was really out was the Beatles at that point. So if you had influences, you know, people picked up on the fact that I was a huge fan of Sid Barrett and, um, and, and Captain Beefheart. We had quite a lot of the principles of Beefheart's magic band in the early, in the soft boys, you know, mm -hmm. two guitars, left and right speaker doing slightly parallel things. It wasn't as dissonant or as intricate as, as the magic band, but it still had that. It wasn't just lead and rhythm, you know, or noise and noisier. Um, and we also actually kind of worked out quite carefully what the rhythm section, what everything was doing. So the the backing tracks of the early Soft Boys were actually probably better than the records, I think. <laughs> um, they were easier to listen to because they were very dense. And then, and then I put loads of even more dense words on top. And actually, I think it was probably more fun just listening to them as backing tracks. The um, records are pretty fun, Robin. I got to be honest with you. The records um, still hold up pretty good today. So. Well, thank you. Um, I, I, I did have a, I, did, I had a, a, a cassette of backing tracks of A Can of Bees, the first one, which I think was, which was still a more, a more beef hearty kind of record. Mm -hmm. Um. Oh boy. I don't know what I'm saying. You know, people picked up, uh, rock writers definitely picked up, you know, they would encourage you to sound like Beefheart or they liked the Sid Barrett element, you know, but they wouldn't have been that keen on anything that, things like the Beatles or, or Cream, <laughs> anything with Eric Clapton in it was terminally uncool. <laughs> um, you know, what had, things that had just been big were not what they wanted. Uh, so the the Beatles weren't really re-legitimised in Britain again properly, probably until Oasis. You know? mm -hmm. By that time, it was far enough away that people could go, whoa, we love it. it it's interesting because in America, the, the Beatles influence sort of power pop stuff is kind of part of that wave of punk. But you're right. Like, it really feels like in England, it is a real break from that tradition. Well, I think the power pop, I mean... Things like, I suppose, Tom Petty and the Cars, um, and I'm trying to think of other ones, but you know, the Knack, and they they were seen as power pop people who might wear skinny ties, you know, Elvis Costello. That that was almost seen as kind of radical, punky, you know. Whereas in Britain, that was just sort of new mainstream. Yeah. Punk itself was much more, much more oafish and aggressive, and sort of, in some cases, hectoring. Um, you know. Well, that, that, saw, that, oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, I think you bring up you brought up a great point earlier where you're there's almost like this double helix in punk rock around the world where you have this sort of like, you know, oafish street rock and roll meeting this sort of pretentious art rock and and, and when they kind of come yeah. together that's that 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 nexus point is punk and i think you, you you said it perfectly it's epitomized by these two writers at sounds that are ultimately pushing two musics that will become hugely influential around the globe but two very different interpretations of the same energy well and was completely incompatible i don't know how long savage was in the office with gary bushel 
Um, I mean, I'm, I'm in touch with John Savage. He wrote, gave the Soft Boys their first live review in um, in Sounds. In fact, um, we we did put out a record through a, the Cambridge the Cambridge. I don't know what you'd call it, punk indie. I mean, again, it's hard to define it. You mentioned the Raw Records. Raw Records, an Raw. incredibly important label. Unbelievably well, important. that was run by a sort of small-time, a dodgy small-time <laughs> guy who ran a record store in Cambridge called Remember Those Oldies. And he had a good stock of used 45s and LPs at a time when not many people did, you know, this was the late 1970s, mid mid 70s, even 76, 77. And he was the first person to start stocking punk. So he would have the damned singles and he would have, I know, I think he may have even had I Could Puke by White Boy on the Doodly Squat label, which was, oh my God. was a bit of a grail for me. I'd always wanted to get hold of that. Do you have a copy um, now? No, I don't. And I think I finally heard it. I couldn't believe it. It was everything I hoped it might be. Do you know it? Oh, absolutely. And, and the, you know, that record's hugely significant because that's a big influence on Ian MacKay and Myrner Threat and ultimately Fugazi. But oh, was, really? Yeah, very, very cool record for you to bring up. I will, wow. I will make sure I get you a copy. I promise you. Oh, probably. thank you. Well, um, yeah. That would be great. That's awesome. You know, so they, 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 you had, he was able to, he got things like that. I mean, also it was exciting when there were only like 25 punk or whatever they were, singles around, people could still buy all of them. Mm -hmm. You know, the fewer, the fewer punk records they were, the easier it was to collect them. Once there were 75, then it was simply down to record collector types. Yeah most kids couldn't afford it or wouldn't want to, you know, mm -hmm. um, but it, it, when there weren't that many, it was easier for people to catch on, latch on to. So, it, so we had, you know, he had those and then he decided to start the label and he found these young guys called the users who were, uh, I guess four or five years younger than us. So I think they were still in their late teens. Um, and they had, two songs one was called sick of you and i'm not sure what the other one was and he put them in the local recording studio put out a single and sold twenty thousand copies and he uh but he he didn't pay them he was just one of those people who was <laughs> very good at finagling things and in the end they sued him and i think they got the money or they got the rights back but you know, he was just your classic small-time shark as opposed to a big-time shark. And he put a record of ours out and, again, managed to not pay us any royalties on, on the, some sort of technicality. And, um, and then, oh, God. But, but because that came out, that came to the attention of a, of a major label that was starting an indie sort of you know majors have been majors in drag starting indie labels yes yeah. sort of began around that time um and this was an offshoot of warner brothers which was gonna have nick lowe and elvis costello who were the big stars on stiff 
and we were their first signing so um we were suddenly for about for you know the legendary 15 minutes deep in the spotlight and we you know got the call 12 hours notice to open for costello at the, the nashville rooms the biggest of the london um, pub uh, pub rock pubs and suddenly all those doors that have been closed to us were, were swinging open and everybody wanted us for about six months and um <laughs> And lo and behold, we got on the circuit. We were playing the Nashville and we were playing the Hope and we were playing the the Red Cow and Ding Walls and all of them. And um, and uh, even got taken on the books of the Albion Agency. Um, we didn't really go anywhere. You know, it all kind of, the doors swung shut again and the, the deal faltered and we wound up putting the first record out ourselves and then the second one out through a brand new independent called Armageddon, which again, you know, Armageddon, they... Absolutely. Huge and hugely important. We put out half Japanese, put out so much great experimental stuff that, you know, I guess by that point it wouldn't fall under what the media was taking up as punk, but to me is very important to punk. Well, that was like 80, 81. So, I mean, you know, we basically, the apart from one single on Radar, which was like I said, Warner's in drag. The soft boys' career was entirely indie mm -hmm. from sort of 77 up to 81. And um, and then I put my first solo record out through... Midnight, right? Through Midnight. No, no, through Armageddon. Oh, I'm sorry, you're right. Um, and then I had um, then I had a record actually out through Albion. The Albion agency had a label briefly. Yeah, they had an American uh, artist too, I believe, at, at a certain point. The fans, I think, were on Albion. Who's that? The fans from Atlanta. I think oh. they're one of the first Atlanta kind of really? punk bands. Well, more oh. of a wavy type thing, I guess, that would be taken up now. I think they put the DBs out. They did that. They did the DBs, the DBs too. DBs out in Britain. Um, I think I remember doing a showcase at, 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 for the album I did, Groovy Decay, and uh, with the DBs at, at the venue in Victoria. But uh, sorry, this is all deep reminiscence, Damien. I'm I'm staring through a, a dark window pane, <laughs> reminiscing into the night and sort of looking at looking at other distant windows, trying to anchor my thoughts around them. Yeah, Robin, I mean I'm... it was it was all oh, indie-ish, you know, but sorry. Yeah, by the time it had got into the mid-80s, um there were frillions of all kinds of independent labels and lots of majors too. I think, you know, and we're very happy to stare over your shoulder through this dark window with you, because that's, that's exactly what the show's all about is reminiscing about stuff because it, it's, it's interesting looking back on it now, like you're talking about that first six month period of punk where the media is kind of like, getting excited about all these different bands and all these young bands, like going back to raw records, like the there's the pre Dexy's midnight runners bands, the record that comes out after you on raw records, the killjoys there's the oh users God, that yeah. I'm sick of you. Single is, yeah. is classic. Like it, it's, and it's just this, you know, and even though I, once again, sorry for the fact that the guy turned out to be kind of a crook, but there's still this amazing moment where all these voices that, establish indie alternative new wave progressive music like all this stuff are just kind of 
almost given permission, not given permission, they kind of take permission to kind of put their art out into the world. And, you know, there'd been teen bands obviously prior to this, but it feels like the means of production were really seized by the music fans. Like you were saying, these these music journalists that weren't championing what they were told to champion, they were championing Sid Barrett. They were championing Captain Beefheart. They were championing stuff that was not necessarily commercial anymore. Well, they were championing actually people like Perubu, but they certainly knew who Sid Barrett and Captain Beefheart were. <laughs> okay. um, uh, and yeah, I mean, I. I suppose it. I mean, there there was that point when the acts, the artists, to some extent, owned the means of production, um, which, funnily enough, was a sort of harbinger of what's happened in the last ten years, where you're actually better off putting out your own record now than you are being on a label, um, and that's that's come about for a variety of reasons but this was the first flash of it what i can't remember is like how long it took to get a record pressed back in 1978 or you know um this is something that now my, my partner and i emma um run tiny ghost records and we put our records out my latest one is out on through tiny ghost um <clears throat> excuse me and uh her her first album blonde on the tracks collection of dylan songs is on tiny ghost and she's got another record coming out later in the year anyway you know our life revolves around things like how long does it take to get vinyl pressed how much do you have to pay up front for it you know all that yeah just the the mechanics of putting records out you know where do they go where do you store them how do you ship them out who's doing your distribution um and that first came up in the late 70s except in the days of i could puke by white boy or nini nee, 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 or um <clears throat> you know patrick fitzgerald on small wonder records or something safety been stuck that. in my heart one yeah, of the best yeah. <laughs> um you know those people in those days, everything sold through shops. People didn't even take, you know, people weren't selling their records at gigs. Um, actually, maybe they were, I don't know, but but not in a big way. Basically, there was this huge network of shops and that's how stuff sold. And I suppose a bit of mail order. Um, now it's now it's all it's all about direct to consumer. Um, God, it's amazing to think about all that stuff. And it was, it's 45 years ago, yeah, six years ago, in fact. Yeah. yeah. And I think we're still feeling those reverberate. Well, we still are like, I, I, you know, like, obviously I play in a punk band. I'm older myself now at this point, but there's younger punk bands that are still kind of feeding off this energy that you can just do it yourself. And I think obviously the technology of the tape recorder and the photocopier for, for zines and allowed, yeah. you know, it was almost like there's that cocktail quote about how film won't be an art form until cameras are as cheap as pencils and paper. <laughs> and it feels like those technologies allowed culture creation to almost become affordable enough for young people to do it. You didn't have to rely on, 
you know, the powers that be to kind of disseminate youth culture to you? Or no, no. Although the powers that be didn't lose any time getting in there. <laughs> yeah, very true. You know, and oh my gosh, okay, look, hey man, when just as the powers that be. 10 years previously didn't waste any time exploiting the hippies you know they they were the powers that be always very good at disguising themselves as um you know part of a radical new movement mm -hmm. um and that's just the nature of powers that be it's one of their one of the things they do one of their trademarks um, well yeah well, like, and look how, you know, like you were saying earlier with the skinhead thing, how easily and quickly that gets co-opted by bad actors and fascism and becomes a whole other can of problems. Well, it was fascism. I mean, the, the skinheads, when they turned up in 69 and 70, you know, they were, that was a, a often a, a big racist, you know, it was it's a whole other world to go into, but it, it was a white working class movement which had a lot of racist elements to it let's say not exclusively but um and but then again they also a lot of a lot of skinheads really liked jamaican music so it was a really odd that's a weird I, i've never understood the double think of that but but i guess i don't really know enough about about how how the skins operated um but things were very tribal I and mean, it's another interesting element you know you kind of we were sort of hippies and we were young enough to still be seen as part of a tribe so you did watch out you know you didn't want to you, you might if a bunch of punks came towards you they might possibly want to beat you up or at least kind of revile you or sneer at you or throw something at you because you were a hippie and you know skinheads and punks often felt like that about each other mm. um and i remember again captain sensible sort of getting up at some damn gig and i think he did his thing of taking all his clothes off and saying no oh, punks and skins you're fighting you shouldn't be fighting you should be together you know we're all against the man or something you know some some great speech um but it, but things were very tribal in a way that they weren't necessarily ten years later. Although maybe I was too old to know what the tribes were, I don't know. I think it was still tribal until recently. Like you're saying, things have changed so much. But I guess it was. I've always wondered about this because who you were in terms of what you liked musically and culturally defined you as a person so much when I was growing up. Yeah. And now, when I look at my kids, it doesn't seem like it's that way as much anymore like kids are pulling from different aesthetics and listening to different types of music now it doesn't feel like as tribal as you're saying i think it's been much more mix and match actually probably since the 90s since cds came in and you could suddenly by which time rock music for want of a better word was was you know getting on for 30 years old mm. i mean actually cds came in the 80s didn't they um but it was possible to listen to anything and, and sort of by the end of the 20th century, it was quite hard for anything to be passe. Things, you know, think, yeah. it, it, music wasn't going to be rubbish just because it, because it was prog or people weren't going to make fun of Leonard Cohen or Donovan or something the way they had 15 years earlier, you know. That, mm -hmm. um, 
you know, everything was permitted and nothing was true, perhaps. <laughs> uh, it, but it's definitely been harder and harder to be passé. Going. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Back to that pre-punk period that you were talking about, uh, what kind of stuff were you into? Because once again, that's an, another amazingly interesting period in in British music history where you've got, you, you know, Kilburn and the High Roads and Brizzly Schwartz and, and also at the same time, you've got the Pink Fairies. I guess Pink Fairies would have been done by that point, but there's like sort of this, yeah. this sort of anarchist hippie thing and this sort of working class pub rock thing. Once again, this sort of double helix that's happening almost simultaneously. Yeah. Pub rock wasn't all that always necessarily that working class, but it pub rock was rock bands who played in pubs, largely in London, um, that you could see cheaply. I mean, they you know they'd go out and do gigs at universities and things as well. They weren't just exclusively playing pubs, mm -hmm. but there were a lot of venues. And Nick Lowe knows more about this than I do because he was really part of it. Um, I, don't, I mean, the, what what were you into though? Like that's what I. What I was into was, well, I'd never left 1967. I was very firmly. I wanted to have a. I'd wanted to have a band. I'd had a. I'd had band at art school. Um, I'd, I'd had various attempts, but it was more. I was just getting people whoever my roommates were or my old school friends or just people, I would kind of grab them, you know, but they weren't necessarily people who wanted to be professional musicians or who thought along the same lines I did. And it wasn't until I found the, the sort of Cambridge mob, not all of whom had been at university, but there was a kind of an aesthetic that a lot of them had that was the time I began to actually have a serious group, but I'd always wanted to basically make records like, um, like Revolver by the Beatles, you know, mm. like Rain, Paperback Writer, Eight Miles High by the Birds, um, Arnold Lane by Pink Floyd, um, or you know, I absolutely adored Captain Beefheart. I loved Barrett. Sid Barrett had started Floyd and the stuff he did on his own. But that sort of short, jangly, vibrant, melodic, quite caffeinated, sort of sugar-buzzed kind of music, not kind of deeply sedated, stoned, not, the one, not what it became, <laughs> but the way music sort of hit me in 1966-67 when I was just hitting adolescence, you know, and, and pop was turning into rock, the great metamorphosis. Um, but by the time we were, you know, 76 came around, I was actually listening to a lot of things like Steel Eyes Span and Richard Thompson and the Albion Country Band. I was listening to quite a lot of folk rock 
which again wasn't something that was at all popular with the punks. Um, so I was. But it's interesting because it's that same energy, right? Like you were talking about earlier of going and finding music that's not commercial and championing things that people had thrown away. Like I, I think punk as this sort of uh, postmodern pick and choosing from culture all, all over the years, like you were talking about how it broke down in the nineties, maybe it starts breaking down with punk where you have all these kids coming in, bringing these disparate influences, be it reggae or be it folk rock, be it psychedelic rock, be it hard rock, whatever, and, and kind of putting it together into whatever they interpret punk to be. I think that's a benign way of looking at it. Yeah. I mean, the reality certainly over here was, um, summed up by when when the soft boys played in manchester and we played in in 1978 on a bill with peru boo and the red crayola it was the you know the the art rock end the john savage end yeah um and uh somebody came up and said well i like i like a band but you know we haven't had a harmony up here in six months <laughs> you know it's like we, we, you're not talking our language, mate. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and uh, it, it was just—it it became quite Stalinist. Mm. That off the term "rockist" appeared. And again, I think it was probably some journalist who spread that one around. But the idea that that you—it <clears throat> was—it was deemed a cop out if you resorted to the. Um, the trademarks of music that had gone before. So if you had guitar, guitar solos were rockist, harmonies were rockist, even singing in tune was rockist. You know, if, in order to forge a new path, you had to smash all the old icons and begin again, you know, sticking the shards of yesterday together into some spiky new monster that would take you where no one had ever been before. And I think a lot of, the rock writers again actually believed that. And I think, and I'm still kind of sore about this. I think what they, one of the things they didn't like about the soft boys was that we didn't really subscribe to that. Mm. We liked harmonies. We tried to sing in tune. I tried to have melodies. Um, you know, to begin with, we were very fast and dislocated and um you know we were like something that you see flying around under a microscope at enormous speed some sort of demented organism that was subdividing and going to turn into something else we, we were like that but we got i became more and more about songwriting and i think that didn't necessarily suit them but i don't know um I, th I think you were you were meant to, you were just meant to kind of throw away more of the past, and I didn't really want to do that. And I think nor did nor did the others. I think we, we all, you know, we we liked the disparate. We all liked the Beatles. <laughs> um, some of us were into Beefheart. Some of us were into folk rock. Some of us, not me, were into Steely Dan and the Beach Boys. Um, <laughs> Uh, Kimberly was, a, I think, a fan of, of Big Star. Um, you know, there were, 
we, we could we, we did a couple of beef art songs even um so you know our tastes didn't all overlap but but there were different things we pretty much everybody liked the beatles and i think when matthew joined matthew seligman wasn't really a beatles fan but he was a big bowie he liked bowie um so well, it's interesting what you said back there about by 78, when you're playing that show in Manchester, it's already been codified into this thing that people expect it to be a certain way and have a certain yes. look and sound. But yes. that's, but that's exactly like we were talking about. That's when the power that powers that be got a hold of it. And they don't want you to look to the past. They want you to buy something new and it can't be like what came before. Cause that's what capitalism is, right? You got to buy the newest thing right now because you can't have the old one. And well, sometimes it, well, I don't know. I think now capitalism probably is about buying what you've already bought, or, you know, a new version maybe ever of it. since the, since the CD came out, it, it's sort of yeah. like, here's your chance to buy a revolver again. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> um, you know, which I love. I, I don't have the latest version of revolver, but I totally approve of having to buy it every five years, but you know, yeah. Um, I think whatever it was, Damien, things got, think it got standardized for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, it's easier to sell that way, right? Like it's, it's, easier. it's easy to market. This is punk. This isn't. Yeah. Um, and um, I think you could just tell from the attitude on stage, you know, punk's, punk stuff was very kind of, it was very physically, it was a lot of physical bravado. People were really... They didn't didn't mind if they got smashed in the teeth by the microphone or they got bottles bouncing off them or something. You know, I, I was terrified of being. I don't want to get glass in my eye. I didn't want my teeth knocked out. You know, we were quite physically timid. So, like, you know, two years before, everyone had been sitting on the floor in a cloud of dope and great coats, and two years later, they were all standing up spitting. It was just a really it was quite, it was a it was a revolution <laughs> do you and i've always been intrigued by that when that starts becoming the way punks act or the way or the, the defined version of punk is it sort of the media fascination of sid vicious or is that type of personality like you were there just indicative of where these angry youths were kind of at mentally i think it's you know the british Britain is a nation of thugs and grannies. You can almost divide <laughs> us into thugs and grannies. Or maybe there's a point when a thug turns into a granny and goes, oh, you to stop that now. Oh, those young people, are they dreadful. Come on, you know, come on, Dennis, let's just do, go indoors and have a cup of tea. Um, yeah, you know, th there is a definitely a that element to Britain. In, in some ways, we're very defeatist and kind of passive and we'll sort of take any old shit. I mean, look at look at the way we still have a conservative government and what they're doing to us. Um, all the kind of fears of the 1980s just realised. Um, and so in a way we're very passive, but in another way we're quite sort of surly and truculent and um, I saw a couple of punk bands last night who were, I, I guess, you know, they were standing at some special thing as, as an event that label was running um, and just kind of 
you know, the singers were kind of hollering and gesticulating and kind of lecturing the audience in a way. Um, I don't know. I, th I think we're, the Brits are very good at it. Um, but I don't know how much I include myself. Maybe I'm like that, but in a sort of parallel way. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's the the great thing about a country that can be divided into something so like, you know, as you said, thugs and grannies, there's a lot of room in the middle for people to fall in between and kind of create their own kind of identities that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, human nature hasn't changed at all. It really. I mean, if it did, then, Shakespeare would be irrelevant, but unfortunately, I mean, not that he was necessarily writing much um, about punk rock, but, you know, I mean, people, yeah, people are this, I guess, feel similar <laughs> to how they did. I don't know. <laughs> when did you become aware that this was kind of ha also happening in America? Like you mentioned playing with Perubu, like were you, were you cognizant of all the stuff that was going on internationally at that point too? Uh... No, I mean, not so much. It seemed like what was coming out of the States was less, was more arty and less oafish. Hmm. Um, I mean, there, there were bands that actually sounded, you know, they even sort of sang in a kind of English football chant kind of a way, but actually they were from DC, you know, but, but, what we were getting was more like the New York squawk, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. So you get a Patti Smith um, television talking heads, uh, which all seem to be kind of descended from the velvet underground. Um, and then you, people like the, the Ramones and Blondie, um, but basically actually all very New York thinking about it. Um, I wasn't aware of much coming out of the West Coast. I, I, I mean, there were loads of, there must have been loads, you know, but it wasn't very high profile. Yeah, and I don't think those bands got out and started touring till much later. You know, like, I think you're right. The, the New York defined uh, American punk, it seems like early on, uh, you know, for the longest time, like it was once again, the the version and it's so interesting because you you look at a lot of those bands they get called punk from new york or were part of that original cbgb scene and they would have a tough time playing with the damned i imagine well i don't know that's the interesting thing isn't it you see the term the term may even have been an, an american term and i know that um malcolm mclaren saw the new york dolls he made did he manage them he managed them in their communist period when they wore all the red patent leather ah okay was he was he behind that he was behind that but i think it, I, he saw television and richard hell had that safety pin shirt and i think that was like a huge influence on him uh, okay then he must have brought that back and then he was pals with vivian westwood so there was a big fashion you know they they, they were sort of connected to avant-garde high fashion um but they also had a bunch of young working class guys you know the the or lower middle class guys whatever you know the mm. the 
Sex Pistols were definitely sort of white working class and I think largely the damned. Um, I don't know about The Clash. Strummer was a, a boarding school lad. Um, but there were only two or three, you know, three groups or something and they all knew each other and there were two managers and, you know, a bit like Brian Epstein and Andrew Lou Goldham. Yes. You know, the Beatles and the Stones between them. And, you know, it kind of just just spread like, like roots under the soil, you know, just going everywhere. And um, again, you know, those, those three bands were sort of positioned in the right place. But, yeah, they probably did. Uh, McLaren probably saw the safety pin and, you know, going through Richard Hell's T-shirt and thought, aha, right, you know. <laughs> I will bring this back and I'll put this on Steve Jones. You know, I mean, have you seen Steve Jones lately on Instagram? I've not, I've not checked in on his Instagram. After that Sex Pistols TV show, I think I needed to give myself a little bit of breathing room for the Sex Pistols. When was that? There was a Sex Pistols TV show that was on Disney Plus over here. I think it's a Hulu show. And it's oh, a... it was a dramatization. Very, yeah, very dramatized from oh, okay. my understanding of the history. I was like, well, this doesn't jive with a lot of the stuff I've read. I don't know. But, you know, Steve Jones now sits there in his bathroom singing Steely Dan songs <laughs> yes. and Brian Ferry songs and Eric Clapton songs and all the stuff that punk was supposed to be against. Um Although I don't know whether he really was ever against it anyway. Or it was just McLaren and, and John Lydon or. Yeah. Know, or they maybe, just... maybe nobody was really against anything, but, it, but that's the, what's really fascinating is, is the filter, you know, um, the filter that people do things and then it's, it's broadcast to the world through a lens and it's perceived as something completely different. Mm -hmm. Um, so people are then seen for life as icons that are about something they may not really be about. You know? I was amazed when I met Captain Sensible that actually he was a hippie. And of course, all the punks had to be hippies because they couldn't have been punks before they were punks. They had to come from somewhere. Yeah. So, you know, they would have already started smoking dope and having long hair and listening to van der graaf generator or yes or something you know before they discovered um you know rich and hell and the mc5 and the the things that fitted into the orthodoxy of punk yeah um, no one's born into it i think that's the thing that comes up on the show no. like and, and everybody's going to be somebody's poser because no one's going to be punk enough for someone else well, and nobody knows. I don't know. I mean, would you? How, how would you define punk yourself? Would, would you? How could you put it into words? I, I, I kind of look at it, and this this is going to sound like a huge overstatement, but I look at it almost like a religion, and just like every person that believes in God will define that God differently. I think punk is the same way, and just as there's Gary Bushel, there's John Savage, now there's Machine Gun Kelly, there's uh, Avril Lavigne. But then there's also Fugazi and it's just, it really is whatever you kind of saw in this. And I think ultimately it's about just giving young people freedom to create. And I think that's the thing that I find the universal about it. 
So in a way, there isn't necessarily to your ears a defining sound of punk. No, and I think that's when people start saying there's a defining sound in it. That's when I lose interest because, you know, like I, I'm sure you're familiar with, but all that Flying Nun record stuff out of New Zealand. I, I know of it. I'm afraid I don't, I don't actually, I can't say I know the music itself, but I certainly know the label. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, punk arrives there and unlike like you're saying in the uk where there's this rejection of melody in in new zealand there's almost sort of this drive towards melody and sort of like oh. the search for making the purest melodies yeah. possible and perfect pop songs but that was their version of punk and it bears nothing like it sounds nothing like blitz and exploited but it is just as valid as punk because that's what they called punk oh okay so i should uh have a listen to some of that that sounds intriguing i think you'd i, um, I definitely would recommend checking out uh the clean and unfortunately sadly the clean's yeah. drummer uh just passed away like a couple uh -huh. of weeks ago but they okay. they kind of had the same sort of effect that yeah that you know the dam would have had but to new zealand gosh and that are those also in those days if you were doing it in new zealand it was so far away mm -hmm. You know, it would it would have taken a week for a record to get from London to New Zealand. Well, they, they um, when people from New Zealand have come on the show, they talk about getting the NME sort of six months after the fact. So they heard right. about punk, and then by the time they got to the backlash stage, to the you know like what you were talking about, where certain things weren't punk and things were punk, mm. they had already moved on and started creating music. So they were like, oh well, we've already got this energy. We're going to take it to where it's going to go for us now. Well, that's good in a way. It means they 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 didn't have to take their cue from um, the music writers, mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. weren't necessarily musical themselves. Yeah, uh, but and and like you're saying, this is the beginning of artists really being affected by music criticism. You know, because the music critic became kind of embedded in the process with punk a little bit. Yes, I think I think it, um, yeah. Whereas the the acts, the big acts of the sixties, music criticism, music criticism actually developed because of them. So because of Bob Dylan, particularly, but then the Beatles and the Grateful Dead, Rolling Stone developed the firepower to have somebody write a five-page article on them. Um, you know. And so that firepower was fully in place by the time it was kind of there when glam rock came along, actually. But they were all certainly, you know, they had their guns firmly trained on on punk as soon as it appeared. Um, and that would be a really interesting sociological study, actually, the influence of the influence of music journalism on music in the 1970s <laughs> <laughs> well it and now we're in an era where well i guess we're kind of transcending this era but we're coming out of an era where reviews were what got you booked on festivals like the power of the review in the mid 2000s in the early 2000s was incredible it could break and make an artist like in a like it could really just end your career completely a bad review on pitchfork uh, on Pitchfork, well, it was kind of like that with the with the NME, and mm -hmm. you know the NME didn't like the first Soft Boys LP, so the other three papers followed suit. So, so um, we were kind of over, really. I mean, 
we survived, but but we metamorphosed, and uh, that record was that record lived in dwelled in outer darkness for many decades, and then a few people began to say they liked it. Um, well, I think yeah. they, you proved the press wrong on that one. In the you know, I think they, well, I think all those you. writers are wrong on that. Um, that's well, that's that's good to know. <laughs> I, it, you know, and I, I don't want to keep you all day, and this has been unbelievable, Robin. And at some point, would you come back for a part two? Because there, as I like, what I want to talk about, you talked about Steve Jones and the fact that Steve put out one record, no, two records during that period, and that's defined his whole life, you know. But you're someone who put out records during that period, but has consistently been a force, an influence, an inspiration in, I don't know, underground music, broadly termed, punk music to me, independent music, whatever. But like, you've you've just had this career where you can't really be defined by any one period of your life because you've constantly been part of the zeitgeist. Uh, I don't know, I think I've just dodged the zeitgeist really. <laughs> it's, <laughs> It's 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 learned to leave me in peace. Um, you know the expression: a stopped clock is right twice a day. Yes. And I think because I'm so firmly rooted in 1966, 67, what I do goes in and out of favour. Um, but actually, you know, I've got sort of two settings really. I've got loud and I've got quiet. I'm either jangling away with a bunch of guitars or I'm just sitting there you know playing quietly on an acoustic um with a with a piano and, and, and i've sort of established that pattern years ago and i just go back and forth like a, a windscreen wiper um but you know we're we're still all you know steve jones is def, defined to the public by something that i think doesn't represent him at all now um in a and way, I, I think I, I'm. I think I'm probably more. Uh, I don't know. Who knows what I'm known for? Probably the wrong things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, and I think Steve Jones' best record. I think, I think the stuff he wrote in the Professionals is unbelievable. But yet, you know, he's always going to be. I don't. Know, I don't want to say burden because I'm sure he's had a quite nice life from it. But like, I mean, like it's always going to be the specter that hangs over him creatively. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And and but it's also kind of what his fame is predicated on. Um, and uh, I've been on his radio show a couple of times. He's, he's it, we actually, um, yeah, played together. It sounded really good. We played That's a awesome. Dylan song. I like that. Um, but that's what happens when people get older a lot of the things that you you just find out they've actually got a lot more in common than you think you know and i've also um, found it's like we're all on an island and as as i'm getting older the waters come in more and more and there's less and less land so these people that you weren't <laughs> yes. necessarily friends with you're now <laughs> beside and you're friends with well that's true you're all edging up the trees together oh god it's yeah. you can you go and I, can you go and sit on another branch please <laughs> I don't. I don't consider you my branch mate. <laughs> I know it's a. It's an awful, an awful lesson. But yeah, um, and it's funny looking back at that. What's the name of your band? We're called Fucked Up. 
Um, oh, <laughs> jelly food. <laughs> we were you... we're actually label mates in in a way because we were on Matador Records for a number of years. Oh, oh, you know Gerard, right? Okay, yeah. I never spent. I seem to spend more time with Lombardi for some reason, but it wasn't like wasn't like choice. I just seemed to always see Chris rather than Gerard. No. Well, Gerard, um, it's funny because Gerard, when I when we first signed to Matador, I remember sitting down. Like I, I found my introduction to to your music came through finding that a used copy of the Ryko disc CD when I was just getting into punk. Oh, right, just, yeah. It just blew my mind. But then, when we signed to Matador Records, it was a few years after they had done the reissue. Oh yeah, and, yeah. And just meeting him and 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 talking with them about it and being like, oh, it's you know, like I think that's when it felt like this was the right label for us as this quote-unquote aging punk band yeah because their definition of punk was the soft boys at the same time as it was la peste and at the same time as it was unsane like it was yeah broad yes and that's what they how they would have seen it i i think there's definitely a, a if you're across the atlantic um you look at the whole from britain you kind of look at you probably got a wider palette, if you like, mm -hmm. certainly than people had over here. So you're able, that's why they do a, I mean, there was a compilation that put a Soft Boys song next to Sham 69, which, you know, you would never have had over here. The, the two records would have caught fire if they'd been next to each other or they'd have curdled or something. <laughs> you know? One of them would have come out in hideous blisters and just, shriveled up and died um but you know i think it was some warner compilation of some kind happily put i want to be an angle poise lamp next to hurry up harry or something you know because they came out the same year um yeah so i think you've you've got a broader perspective from over there are you are you all based in toronto you well, actually our drummer moved to england he lives in london on a on a boat that kind of moves around because I don't think they have a permanent mooring. So they're constantly <laughs> on, on the move. Moved over here. <laughs> yeah. He, he so, married an English woman and, and moved over and uh, produces a bunch of records over there now. Like, it's actually incredible. There's sort of this, you know, obviously there's been many sort of rebubbling ups of it, but in the last yeah. 10 years, there's been this explosion of DIY music in London and sort of the London DIY scene oh. is really influencing oh, really? yeah like big Joni, uh chubby and the gang the chisel there's uh high viz there's like this wave of uh of exciting english you know i guess broadly termed punk bands but once again all oh, over really? kind of different sounds wow that sounds good i don't know anything about it i don't even know where to go nor do i um, i just follow it through our drummer okay. because he's producing these records I, I've got, what's he what's his name jonah falco jonah falco Oh well, okay. Well, I'm. Um, uh, God, I'm. I'm intrigued, um, and I'm, I don't even have. I'm going to be away a lot, but um, Joe J O N A F A L C O. Yeah, J O N A H. Yeah. Oh, Jonah, as in Jonah. Yeah. Yeah, Jonah. I'm Sorry, whale. My bad. My, my bad Canadian pronunciation. No, no, no. You pronounced it absolutely correct. Um, oh. <coughs> he uh but i will send stuff to well because you know allison baker who was the initial connection between the two of us um she is 
like one of our mentors in Toronto. So I will definitely sell, send Allison music to send to you. So you can kind of hear some of, uh, some of the stuff that's coming right now, because you're the, uh, the, the, the forefather for it in a way, like well, this door that you kick nice. Well, because you, you guys, you know, and I say you guys, I mean like the whole movement, the doors that get kicked open are, are stay open and bands consistently kind of, you know, are able to feed off that and kind of, and I think it's like the fact that you weren't making music that sounded like Sham 69 and that, that there's, is this melody there that now is reinterpreted back into punk rock and has become part of this sort of zeitgeist that is punk. Well, I'm glad, you know, any chance to rewrite history. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I'd love to. It's nice to it's nice to feel that you're part of something. Um, I think that that you've contributed to. To something, and I mean, just culturally, you know, in, in music, particularly because music's the most emotional art form. So to feel like uh i've been part of that i really i appreciate that it makes me feel like i've done something with my life you know because it's that it's that ongoing tide you just have to hope continues in some way if our species continues or our culture continues um that you've been for a little while you've been part of the river and you've also been part of the banks that have sort of steered the river well i think it was your life if it's possible to be both robin this has been absolutely a huge lifetime thrill for me and anytime you want to come back on the show please know the door is always open to you well that's nice i love a door when it's open i'm thank you for having me damien it's been great um plowing through this particular field finding all these all these wonderful historic things to look at again <laughs> thank you robin for coming on the show and you heard right there well maybe you didn't hear it but we talked about it afterwards robin is going to come back for a part two at some point in the future and uh very excited for you to hear that as well because i had a great time recording that one um a lot of fun and check out Robin on those tour dates in America. As I say, going uh, across the country, basically all over the place, playing different stuff. And then also decided that he's got some more tour dates in, in June coming back to America. So some stuff in Spain and go to robinhitchcock.com and find it all out for yourself over there. All right. Coming up on the next episode of the show. This is a monster one. Uh, bringing together two people that I am a huge, huge fan of. Arguably two of the most influential drummers, and I know this is a bold statement, uh, from the Pacific Northwest to emerge from punk rock, returning to the show, making their first splits appearance from the Melvins, Dale Crover and from Bikini Kill, Toby Vale. And it is a great conversation with two people that have lived and shaped this music for their, well, they're basically both their adult lives and uh, friends. They've, they've been known each other forever and 
we talk about a lot of cool stuff on this one. I'm very excited for you to hear it. That is going to be on the next episode of the show. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much again to Cream uh, Magazine. And uh, that's it. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives and issues of indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect their their lives, their their rights, and their their bodies and freedoms. Uh, especially now, like, and I, I say this as a Canadian who's very concerned about what's going to happen in my country too, looking at what's happening in America. So if there's organizations that are doing positive work in this world, uh, get involved right now. Uh, there's a lot of organizations that are trying to lend aid to trans people that are facing a very uncertain legal future in certain places in the United States right now. Also, we need to stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths and different races. And so once again, get involved in organizations that are affecting positive change in this world, because we're not talking about political issues here. We're talking about just basic human rights. People deserve the right to exist. Um, also, we need to preserve people's rights to choose what they want to do with their reproductive systems. So get involved, donate time, money, uh, whatever, whatever, you know, you'll feel better. Speaking about uh, feeling better, try meditating. I'm definitely about to go meditate. I'm, I can't wait to calm my head down. And uh, maybe it'll work for you. I didn't believe in it. didn't work for me for years, I said. And here it is working for me. So maybe it'll work for you too. Uh, you know, I'm not the first to hit on this. I'm just letting you know about my personal experience. Um, get into... Uh, <laughs> don't, don't Sign your organ donor cards. Sorry, I'm tired. Sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them anymore. They're gone. They're just gone. You're dead. You're dead at that point, right? So it's just dead weight. But it could give someone else a new lease on life. So, you know, sign them. Get involved in punk, too. Start a band. Start a fanzine before you wind up donating your organs. You know, do something. Uh, and that's it. Thank you very much for listening. And I'll see you on the next episode. Bye.